Today, I'm going to reach back into where I brought you last week, though it was a rather lengthy sermon that culminated in a particular revelation that I felt was very important for us. And it bears witness and it, it, it bears the necessity to go back and bring some, not necessarily clarification, but some extension, certain things that I shared with you last week. And I shared with you under the context of the types and the shadows of the Old Testament. And I brought this to your awareness of certain words, five words, I believe, that we found in the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews is using this type of teaching to bring the clarification to the the Jewish believers who are being tempted to fall back to Judaism. And he used the word shadow, similitude, example, and pattern, and figure. We're going to put a couple verses on the screen, such as Hebrews 8 and 5. Three of those five words are found in this one verse of Scripture alone. It says, who serve unto, this is Hebrews 8 and 5, who serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou makest all things according to the pattern showed thee in the mount. Those words are echoed in Hebrews 10, the first verse. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So the author here understands the purpose of the law. It was the shadow of the good thing that was yet to come and that was Christ, not yet to come for the author at the time of his writing, but yet to come of the law at the time of its of being given by Moses, that it was a shadow of that which was yet to come. And in Hebrews 10, the other word that I want to draw your attention to is Hebrews 9, verses 9, and then verse 24, for here we find the word figure. It says in the ninth verse, which was a figure for the time then present. Also, we see that in the 24th verse. Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. Now, this particular word bore witness with me sharing with you last week because in the Greek, it is parabol, B-O-L at the end, not B-L-E as you and I pronounce it in, or spell it in English, but it's parabol. And it means in essence exactly what you know a parable is. It's in essence a, uh, a teaching or a story uh, that can teach morals and values such as the parables of Jesus. And sometimes it uses inanimate objects to express spiritual truths. And I shared with you how that Jesus used parables in much of his teaching because it helps sometimes to have a visual, right? And so in that vein, very quickly, the author here is confirming the fact that in essence all of Judaism was in essence a parable. It was a picture image for them to see the one who would fulfill the requirements of the law, that, the, that the, the lamb itself, the Passover lamb, was not sufficient, or the bullock could not take away sin, or a turtle dove slain over running water could not take away sin. But there would come one who had the capacity. He had precious blood, Amen. precious blood that would actually produce redemption for us. And so it was an image. Now, the word figure actually is used by the Apostle Paul in, uh, in, in his writing in Romans chapter 5, or the translators. It's actually a different Greek word. In, in Romans 5 and 14, it's speaking of Christ, and it says, which is a figure of him who is to come. In Romans chapter 5, verse 14. And that particular Greek word is topo, and it means type. So just so you'll understand the language that I'm using, I'm using the language that says types and shadows. 
types and shadows. So what I'm saying is, is that the practices of the Hebrew people that included the priests and the Levites and the sacrifices and the bullocks and the goats and the Passover lamb and the turtle dove and the washings, all those were figures. They were types and shadows of the fulfillment that would take place in Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross. That was his past, in essence. And when we learn about it, it lets us see Jesus in a little bit different light, more fully, more completely. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews kind of completes this thought and says, but we see Jesus. In essence, through everything, we see Jesus. That means to believe that's your goal. That should be your objective. I want to see him. John 5 and I believe 39, Jesus said, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have life, and they are they which testify of me. And I shared with you the experience of two of his disciples that met with Jesus on the Emmaus Road. And I would like to reiterate that today because it sets the proper foundation for where I'm going to take you today. And that experience was very important because you can experience the same thing as well in your own life. Now remember, Jesus has died been crucified. His body's been taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, put in a, a, a tomb and sealed shut by the signet ring of Pontius Pilate. Three days later, or uh, on the, the first day of the week, the women that had been with Jesus' uh, disciples all along had gone to the sepulcher to anoint his body for burial, to, ta- or to actually do a proper burial, because Joseph did not have time to properly embalm his body. And they were, you know, they were confronted by a stone rolled away in the appearance of a brilliant angel, brilliant in glory, who said, why seek ye the risen among the dead? Y'all remember that passage of Scripture. They run and they tell the disciples. The Two of the disciples get up immediately and go and look in the sepulcher. The Bible says John, who is younger than Peter, arrives there first. He looks into the sepulcher but will not go in. You learned last week why he would not go in because if he went into the graveyard, according to the Mosaic law, he would be unclean and therefore, but Peter didn't care. How many of you have ever been like that? Sometimes I've just got to find out. He did not care. And he went in. They both walked away perplexed. Now, later, the Bible tells us, and this is recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, and we're going to read a couple of those verses. I think they're going to post those on the screen. Two of these disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as they're walking, Jesus resurrected, full resurrection, but withholds his presence from the two disciples or his, or his recognition. He, hold, he withholds their ability to recognize him. He's fully in the flesh. They could have touched him and felt him, but they did not know that it was Jesus. They just supposed that he was a stranger. He addresses the fact that their countenances have fallen. They look sad, and he asked why. They relate the story about Jesus of Nazareth and his sudden crucifixion on the cross and Nazareth the news that, two of, that the, the, the women have gone and found the sepulcher empty and now they're announcing that he's alive and they're simply confused. They don't understand. I mean, though, that is kind of a confusing moment. They had seen him die, saw him put in the grave, and now he's, he's being uh, proclaimed that he's alive. Well, this Jesus, who is, again, his, his, uh, his um, appearance, his full appearance is being withheld from them. Once he hears their confession that we don't even know, we don't understand, let's kind of read it there. Are we able to post those scriptures in Luke's gospel? I'd like, I'd like for you to see the sharp language that even Jesus uses at first in a moment because he kind of upbraids them. And it's in Luke chapter 24, I think it's the 25th verse beginning right here. Look at, look at these words. It says, oh fools, how many of you would like to be addressed by Christ. Sometimes we think he comes to us all the time, go, oh, you're so sweet, I love you. Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe 
He doesn't mind. Jesus doesn't mind correcting his children. Right. right? And so he said, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 26 verse. Let's read this. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 27th verse. And beginning. Now notice where he said beginning. He said that the prophets first, but it says beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He expounded unto them in the scriptures the things that were concerning himself. So in essence, probably what he did for the next few, not necessarily a few minutes, it could have been several hours that the journey took place, Jesus begins to systematically go back into the Mosaic law and he begins to point out things that they're very familiar with, the things that they have been a part of all of their life because they've been raised in Judaism, but they did not know, they were unaware that it was foreshadowing his death on the cross. He's upbraiding them because he believes that they ought to have recognized this. One last verse of Scripture, I think, is the 44th verse that I'd like to put up there. And it says, after he appears to the remainder of his disciples, he does, in essence, the same thing. He said, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. So therefore, you and I who live in the New Testament, but if we don't understand the Old Testament, if we don't ever read the, the Old Testament, if we don't look into it, then we're missing a revelation of Jesus Christ. We're missing a tremendous way that God can communicate truth to you because if we're all visual learners, then when we look back to that parable, we're seeing a giant portrait that began all the way in the Genesis and ran all the way until Jesus, the last sacrifice ever received in heaven by an atonement uh, according to blood, God accepted Jesus' sacrifice when he said it is finished and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It's a beautiful image and we have to see it. It's a parable. We're talking, and I love this passage of scripture because it says, when they talked about it later, when Jesus disappeared from the presence, when they broke bread, remember how he took bread and broke it, and then their eyes were open, and can you imagine how they felt at that moment of time? Can you imagine? Would to God our eyes would be open and we would realize he's here in our midst right now. And some of us aren't even aware of it. He, and Jesus at that moment of time disappears from their sight and they begin to talk amongst themselves and they say, did not our hearts burn within us? 32nd verse, when he talked to us along the way. And let me tell you, when you begin to study the word of God and you look through the lens of typology and shadows and images and parables and figures, I'm telling you, your heart will burn within you. I'm telling you, a revelation of who Jesus Christ is will become made known to you and it will solidify your faith in the living Christ. Your heart will burn. And I tell you, having your heart burn within you is a positive thing because it's burning out unbelief. It's burning out sin. It's burning out an affection uh, to this world, or, uh, the, the, uh, the desires that we have to the world because the Word, the Word of God is burning and purging in our hearts. So for a moment of time, Let's consider typology. The typology that you see when you study the scripture, you'll find typical persons, typical places, typical things, typical events, typical offices, typical, typical actions, and typical institutions. I'll give you just a few of these today to see if this bears witness with you very quickly. 
for a moment of time, let's just take a few persons, also some things and some events that transpired in the Old Testament and just see if you can see the, the correlation between the actual person or the event and the one that would fulfill the type. It's called the antitype. When the fulfillment comes, it's called the antitype. The type is the shadow, the image, but the real thing become, becomes exhibited. The Bible tells us that Adam, Adam, Romans 5 says that Adam was a figure of him who was to come. The analogy that the Apostle Paul uses to expound upon this is by one man sin in the world and death by sin. Therefore, we're all sinners because of the unbelief of one man. But because of the faithful obedience of one man, life has come into the world. Death came in by one man and so came in life by one man. The Bible calls Jesus the last Adam, so therefore Adam is a figure of Christ. Does that make sense to you today? We also understand in the Genesis when Adam had sinned, he and Eve uh, arrived at the place where they felt like they could cover both their sin and their nakedness by sewing fig leaves together. When essence what they were doing is that was the beginning stages of religion, that man by human effort could hide two things, both his sin and his nakedness. But I'm telling you, all things are open to the eyes of our God. And it was insufficient for God to commune with Adam as he hid behind the, the, the sown fig leaves. So you know what God did? God slayed an animal, took his skin and covered him in that skin and most probably he slayed a lamb. And Adam and Eve were probably covered in lamb skin when they emerged from the garden. You remember Abel? How the Abel brought a sacrifice, the son of Adam and Eve, Abel and Cain. Cain brought a sacrifice that was rejected. He brought the fruit of the ground. Abel brought a sacrifice. His sacrifice was a firstling of the flock. Cain's was rejected because it was the fruit of his labor. But Abel brought the fruit of the firstlings of the flock, and his was accepted before God. And again, it teaches us that religion cannot in any wise atone for your sin. Only the provision that God gives us. You remember Remember the story, the Bible says that Cain was so vicious in his hatred towards Abel that he slew Abel and that Abel's blood cried out from the ground demanding justice and punishment that would come upon uh, um, Cain for slaying his brother. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus' blood speaks a better thing than Abel's does because Abel's blood demanded justice, but Jesus' blood cries out for mercy and grace. Glory to God. Are you seeing the figure for just a moment how it kind of causes the portrait to become real to us. Abraham walked up the mountains of Moriah with his young son at his side and he was questioned by his son. His son said, Father, he said, I see the fire and we have the wood, but where is the sacrifice? And Father Abraham prophetically declared these words, My son, God himself shall provide himself a lamb. Glory to God. And when did he provide it? On a mount that he said, This is Jehovah Jireh. In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 2,000, 3,000 years later, Jesus Christ died on the very hillsides that Abraham futuristically saw fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And I tell you, you can't see things like that and it not burn in your heart, burn in your spirit. Joseph was sold by his brothers for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold by the hand of Judas for for 30 pieces of silver. Remember what it said about Joseph and Jesus, first of all, that the first time his brothers came to him when he was the prime minister of Egypt and his brothers came to him seeking bread, the first time they came to him, they didn't recognize him. John said, he came to his own and his own received him not. 
The Bible then says the second time they came, they recognized him. How many of you know when Christ comes the second time, the very ones that hung him on the cross, they're going to look upon him and they're going to see the one that they pierced. And Zechariah said they're going to mourn for him. Moses himself was a type of Jesus where he said, A prophet like unto me. Remember what John said, The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth. Come on now. Moses gave us the law. A law of carnal commandment, but Jesus Christ gave us law. He gave us grace and mercy. Exodus 12, the night of the Passover, Moses instructs the children of Israel to take a lamb in its first year. Take it and slay it. Cook its carcass for your family to eat. But he said, take hyssop branch and dip it in blood and go to the doorpost and strike the top of the doorpost and the side bar of the doorpost or the side post there of the door. And he said, because a Passover, an angel is going to go through all the land tonight. It's a death angel. And there will not be a single house that won't experience the death angel's wrath except for unless he comes to a house that's covered by the blood. For the writer said, when I see the blood, come on, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. How many of you know we all deserve the judgment of Almighty God, the righteous indignation of a holy God upon unholy people? But when the blood was applied, glory to God, when he sees the blood, he passes his wrath over us. Hallelujah. What a figure of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. In the practice of the sin offering and the burn offering, when you sinned and you brought an offering unto God, a sin offering, you would actually lay your hand on the sacrifice and your sin would would be placed on the sacrifice and you would thereby be forgiven. How many of you know that my sin and your sin was placed on Jesus Christ and therefore because of his atoning blood, Colossians 2 and 14 says we receive the forgiveness of sins. Bible tells us of a burnt offering. It was an acceptableness. It was creating uh, the mindset that you were acceptable before God. And there was an exchange that took place. The acceptableness of the offering passed to the worshiper. The worshiper had sinned. It was unacceptable before God. But when he offered the burnt offering, the offering that was accepted is now the acceptableness of this was passed unto the offerer. And the Bible says in the epistles of the apostles, we are accepted in the beloved. We've been accepted before God. Remember a brazen serpent. The Bible says that Jesus himself said that as Moses lifted up a brazen serpent in the wilderness, says, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross of Calvary. And in the days of the book of Numbers when they lifted that pole with that serpent on it, everybody that had been bitten with the poison of that asp would look at that pole, would look at that pole, and by looking intently at that pole, by looking at intently at that pole, not gazing. A study in the book in the, in the Hebrew tells us it wasn't a quick glance. It was that you looked at the pole. And by looking at the pole, a supernatural power of God was worked in your life that eradicated the effect of the poison that was destroying you. And how many of you know when we look at the work of the cross? Come on, how many of you know when we look at the work of the cross? then the sin that's been inside of us is eradicated by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ as we gaze intently upon the wondrous work of the cross. The smitten rock. Moses took a rod and he smote a rock one time. And when he smote the rock, life-giving water flowed out. How many of you know on the cross of Calvary, Jesus Christ was smitten 
And when he was smitten, outflowed life-giving water for all. Come, you who are thirsty, and drink. Drink of his presence and of his glory and of his redemption. Jesus said, as manna fell from heaven, I'm the true bread. Are y'all catching where I'm going? I'm just kind of building just a little foundation to take you right where I want you. It won't be as long as last week. He said, I'm the bread. Jacob's ladder. Have you ever contemplated Jacob's ladder? It's kind of odd to you. Remember when he pillowed his stone at Bethel? Pillowed his head on stone at Bethel. And in his dream, he saw a ladder with angels going up and down. Remember that? Y'all read the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's in there. Just make sure. It's there. Genesis, beginnings, Jacob. Okay. He saw a ladder and angels descending. Do you know Jesus in John chapter 1? He said, from henceforth, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man to fulfill the prophetic type that was given to us by Jacob. On and on. How many of you know Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? So shall the Son of Man be. Come on now, are y'all catching? It's a figure. It's a picture. It's an image. Destroy this body, he said. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Destroy this temple. Lastly, last example, I love this one. This one's, you got to catch this one. It's a little different. This one's a little bit unique to us. This is Jezebel's daughter. How many would not want to be the daughter of Jezebel? I mean, can you be in school? Who's your mama? I was adopted. (laughs) Athelia is her name. And when her son died, she seized the moment to usurp the throne. And she had all of his descendants killed. Her grandchildren. Can you imagine? It tells you how wicked. All of her children, her grandchildren, she had slain because she seized the throne. But the Bible says this, that the high priest, the Bible records it this way, but one from among the slain was taken. And he was hidden in the temple of the Lord till the time of his proclamation as king. How many know the usurper Satan thought that he had completed his his rebellion against God when he destroyed Jesus on the cross. But from the dead he was raised and he's hidden in the presence of God awaiting one day his proclamation as king. Oh, hallelujah. You missed a great place to say amen right there. One of the last concluding thoughts with that particular passage, that analogy, the high priest kept this young boy, this baby, for six years until he was revealed in the seventh year. And at the, towards the end, he finally let the other priests in on it. They thought that all the king's sons were destroyed. And can you imagine how their lives changed when the high priest opened the door and you said, you see that little seven-year-old little boy right there? His name is Joash, and he is the king's son. He is now going to be the king. How their lives was changed when they realized that their king was not dead, but he was alive. How many of you know it changed your life when you discovered that your Savior is not dead, but he is alive awaiting his proclamation one day as the king of both this world and all the universe. Glory to God. It's a shadow. It's an image. It'll cause your heart to burn within you. When you begin to look at it more intimately and more intently, you'll see Jesus in ways that you have not seen him before. Last week, I shared with you one fateful sacrifice. It was the sacrifice of the red heifer. Do you all remember that right there? And I, I, I have to admit, I took a long time. 
I did. I, I, I listened to it last night, oddly enough, finally, the course of the week. And it took me a while to get where I needed to go. And so I understand I gave you probably too much information. I spent a lot of time developing this thought that the possibility of Jesus' death took place possibly not at one of the traditional sites, but possibly on the Mount of Olives, a very famous site in all Judaism. Okay, And I, I, I shared with you now, the significance that I was, was, was attempting to create was I was attempting to create a connection between Jesus' crucifixion and the sacrifice of the red heifer, okay? So stay with me for a few minutes today, for just a few more minutes. Now, here's what I want to clarify. Regardless of where Jesus was crucified, whether he was at Calvary, what was it called, Gordon's Calvary, or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, or the Mount of Olives, irregardless of where, or if it was neither of those places, irregardless, listen, Jesus' death was foreshadowed or typified by the red heifer sacrifice, irregardless. The red heifer sacrifice did take place on the Mount of Olives, but irregardless of whether he was crucified, it did foreshadow it. Let me just reiterate it very quickly this morning for those of you to catch up with me. The heifer was a red heifer about three years of age that was without blemish. Now listen, here's how we know it was a foreshadowing of Jesus. The heifer was taken to the high priest who examined her and would judge her worthy of death and yet he would not slay her as he slayed other sacrifices. He would send her away to be killed by another. And that clearly reveals Jesus who went before Caiaphas, the high priest. Caiaphas examined him and found him worthy of death. But Caiaphas would not slay him. He sent him away to another, Pontius Pilate, so that Pilate would have him slain on the cross. That sets the stage for, for the rest of the, of the typology that's contained in the red heifer sacrifice. Secondly, we see that the whole carcass of the sacrifice was burned on the altar that was outside the camp. I won't repeat all that information, but the whole carcass. Jesus wholly suffered for us on the cross of Calvary. It wasn't just his blood, but it was his body. It was the stripes in his back. It was the pierced brow. Y'all hearing what I'm saying today? There were seven fountains of blood opened in his body that day that provides healing for us in every area of our life. He wholly suffered on the cross of Calvary. You can remember this as well. There were three implements that were used, and I brought just a couple to remind you. There was a cedar wood, and there was a hyssop branch, and this is not hyssop. This is rosemary taken from the garden in mine and Sherry's backyard. But it was an aromatic plant. It had a fragrance to it. And oddly enough, they were actually required to toss into the burning sacrifice where the red heifer was already laid on wood and was uh, being consumed by the flames. They were to take actually the wood and the hyssop and they were actually to just kind of bind it together and lay it on the altar as it was being consumed alongside the red heifer. It all became one. It became the hyssop, it became the scarlet, and it became the cedar wood. And when it was all finished, remember what I told you? They gathered up now, real quickly, to, to, to remind you of the figure, Jesus died on a wooden cross, perhaps made of cedar. Right? And Jesus was first, they first put a robe on him that was scarlet. Now, on the cross, he was naked, but he was covered by scarlet red blood. And then lastly, he said, I thirst. Why did he say that? He's about to die. Does he need one last drink of moisture? He says it to fulfill the antitype, to fulfill the type. 
He said, I thirst. The Roman soldier took a hyssop branch, put a sponge on it, and put it up to his mouth. He drank of it, and then that's when it was complete. So the implements that were used in the red heifer sacrifice, we find that they definitely were a figure of Jesus' cross. Does that make sense? Right? Now let's go. I want you to see something real quickly. Now, when that sacrifice was complete, remember this. This is very important because I'm about to transition and make this personal to you and I today. And it's very important that we see this. The ashes were gathered up by the priest and those ashes were placed in several urns like this. Now, they probably didn't have... This is so I don't spill this. Lord Jesus, please do not fill this. Ashes were gathered up like this. But they weren't kept in Jerusalem. Some were kept in Jerusalem, but did you know some was given to the priest in every precinct all across the nation? Because everybody was going to touch death. Remember what the purpose of it was for? Is that if you touched a dead person, let me have a, a tissue, would you, there's one right here. If you touched a dead person, a bone, went into a graveyard, or the tent where a loved one died at, you were what? Unclean. How many know that's going to happen at some time in your lifetime? You cannot avoid that. You're going to touch something unclean. You're going to be deemed. You touch death. Death is all around us. You're going to, you're going to touch death. And so it, was, it would not make sense for them to, be, to go back to the temple every time. So he sent some, Moses sent some with all the priests, and then certainly that was the way it was all the way down the lineage of the, or the, the generations. They would take up the ashes back to their precinct. And so, again, if you touched death, you would go to the priest. He would take, he would take the ashes... And first of all, he would take a basin and he would take running water, living water, very important, living water, good water. I hope he didn't drink it like I did, but he would take it like that. And then he would take just enough, the writing say. Now, I'm going to show you something that's going to make sense to you in a minute. He would take and he would, the writings, the Hebrew writings of the priest said they would drop just enough because that's all it took, just enough to move the surface of the water. And then he would take a hyssop branch again and he would dip. I'm not going to dip it in there. I'm just going to be demonstrated. He would dip it in to the water, saturate it, move it around, and the unclean person would come. I used Shane as an example last week. There's a reason for that because in Israel, he looked Jewish. <laughs> really did. <laughs> I'll show you a picture later. But he would sprinkle it with the hyssop saturated by water and the ashes of the red heifer. He was set on the third day. He was living outside the camp. Candace has got to take care of the kids in the house inside the city. He's got to live outside. That's an awkward, that's a tough thing. Think about your life if suddenly one of the spouses just had to go and live outside in a tent, couldn't come in the house. That's tough. Think about that. Everybody's, and it's going to happen to everybody at some point in time. You're going to go to the graveyard. You're going to pick up a bone. You're going to go into the tent. Something's going to happen. So everybody's going to have to experience it. And that's why it was important that it was in every community because they had to quickly find their cleanliness so they could be restored to their family. Does that make sense? And so he would sprinkle him the third day. And on the seventh day, he was pronounced clean and he was made whole. Does that make sense? He was allowed, he was allowed to to enter back in, okay? Now put these scriptures real quickly. Now I believe that the application there is to create sanctification for the priest to take the ashes, the residue of the sacrifice and sprinkle it as we just 
demonstrated. Look at this passage, the last passage we're going to show, and then I'm going to bring this to a finality here today. And this is where it's going to be important to you to see what I believe can happen. It's Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. I want you to see this real quickly. Now, I've already shown you how that the implements of this sacrifice found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. The scarlet red, the hyssop, now this is rosemary, it's only represented. I use it because it's aromatic, the same as hyssop, which means it puts off a fragrance. And the cedar wood, tossed into the fire, consumed with the uh, the red heifer, becomes the ashes that would then be placed upon the living water, and a new branch of hyssop would be placed in it, and the unclean person would be sprinkled with it, and therefore after the seventh day they would be pronounced clean. Does that make sense to you today? Now there's a reason behind it and I want you to see because it's foreshadowing something that was yet to come. Something that you're experiencing right now and you don't even know it. You don't even know that right now you're receiving the effect of the ashes of the red heifer in your life right now. For it says here if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes notice that of a heifer sprinkling the unclean can sanctify to the purifying of the flesh. 14th verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now here, let me tell you what I believe that this, the application is a shadow just as much as the implements are. That's what I want you to see in closing. Daryl, join me on the platform, please, today. I believe the application of sprinkling moves beyond justification and teaches sanctification. Sanctification means that we are being separated from that which is evil, evil that we can serve the living God. And part of it is a recognition that we are made holy by the redemptive blood of Jesus Christ. And as a pastor, I I recognize that many in the body of Christ that profess salvation in Christ struggle with their consciousness and their sins that they previously committed or even when they've touched the deadness of this world that we live in amongst every day of our lives. And when your conscience bothers you, then you don't serve God to the fullest of your potential. Right? Now, I'm being honest. I'm going to use layman's terms for just a moment. The word conscience is from two words in the, in the Latin and also in the Greek. Knowing and together. You and I need to know all together all that Jesus died for us on the cross. Because when we know it all together, it changes our consciousness. You and I are saved and we're children of God. But the reality is we live amongst dead people. We live in a dying, decaying, come on, depraved world. That's just where we are. And we occasionally, by choice or by chance, touch something that's dead. Come on, just be honest. You 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 can live your whole life trying not to... Let me use one of this example. You can do your everything to avoid pornography. I mean, that's a... That's a... That's that's a... A deadly vice in our culture today. And you can avoid everything and you don't buy a magazine and you don't watch a show and you don't do anything and you're just driving down the road and there's the billboard. Come to Hooters. Come on. Can I be honest with you? And, and, and let me tell you, you just touch, we touch, we don't mean to, but it's all around us. And there are times you find yourself and then your conscience, using layman's words, we feel unclean. We don't feel unsaved, 
but we feel unclean. And when we feel unclean, you know what we do? We, oddly enough, we're like those that were labeled unclean in the days of Israel. We gravitate outside the camp. We don't come into the camp because we don't feel like we don't feel worthy anymore. They're like, well, I'm still dealing with this, or I touched this, or I watched that, and I, I got all these things in my life, and, and all these thoughts, and my conscience, well, did I forgive this person, or that? All these things come in our consciousness, and then we feel like we can't serve God to the fullest of our capacity, and we gravitate outside the camp, outside the camp. Let me tell you what you need. Here's what you and I need. When we feel unclean in our consciousness, unclean in our mind, unclean in our heart, not unsaved, but unclean. Let me tell you what you need. You and I need the fulfillment of the type. The fulfillment of the type was that we are washed by the washing of the water of the Word of Almighty God. We're washed by the washing of the water of the Word of Almighty God. Because one of the greatest ways for your conscience to be washed is to hear the Word of God. Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. How is it that when you consistently hear the Word, you serve God with a clear conscience? But when you don't consistently hear the Word of God, you don't serve God because your conscience bothers you. Because you've touched dead things. Oh my God, that's a good word right there. But I'm not talking about just any word. I'm talking about the word, especially as it relates to His atoning sacrifice. Colossians 1 says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So I want you to see the, I want you to see the fulfillment of the type. The ashes were mixed with running water or living water, which I believe that speaks of the Holy Spirit of God. Living water. Jesus said, Come. Come on, I'll give you living water. This spake he of the Holy Spirit, which was not yet given, but he's now given. Living water. And it was a priest who was a clean person who took a hyssop branch. Remember that. He took a hyssop branch and he took the ashes of the heifer and he dropped them down into the water and he saturated the branch with the water and when you came to the clean person and he sprinkled you on the seventh day you would be clean I tell you I believe that that's an image of what you're experiencing right now because I believe that priest represents the preacher and I believe sprinkling represents preaching and the hyssop branch is the means of preaching hyssop was aromatic it had a fragrance my preaching must have a fragrance to it if it doesn't have a fragrance it's no good in the nostrils of God and it's no good to you as well but if my preaching is saturated by running water saturated by the anointing of the Holy Ghost of God saturated by the living presence of the living Christ and if my words carry the anointing that reveals to us the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross then even while you're sitting there thinking about what you're doing tomorrow the Holy Spirit is doing a purging come on he's doing a purging in your consciousness and so I believe that my preaching must have a fragrance, that I have to have an anointing, I have to be saturated by the Holy Spirit, and the doctrine that I preach must contain, it must contain the ashes of the sacrifice that is now complete. And if it does, then you could come in here having been in the world all week 
struggling with feeling unclean. But as that washing of water of the word starts to go out, flows out of this sanctuary as I'm preaching or whoever's preaching under the anointing, then what we're doing is we're sprinkling. Come on, somebody. We're sprinkling. We're sprinkling you. We're sprinkling you with the work of the cross. We're sprinkling you with that living water. We're sprinkling you with the anointing of God. And we're reminding you that you are saved. You are the righteousness of God. You are justified. It's as if you have never sinned. When I've been preaching sermons to you about how that he put away your sin, that should free you from ever going back and trying to get it because it's been put away. Come on, somebody. When I say things like you're a new creature in Christ Jesus, old things pass away and all things are made new. That should cause you to hold your head up and say, I'm not the same person that I used to be. That person was put away. Glory to God. I've been made new by the indwelling work of God's Holy Spirit in my life. I can have joy. I can have peace. I'm a child of God. The middle wall of partition was broken down. I have access to the presence of God. I can come boldly into the throne room of grace whereby I obtain mercy and receive grace to help. Remember what Jesus brought. Moses brought the law. Jesus brought mercy and grace. You and I can go boldly into the throne room of grace and we obtain two things, mercy and grace to help us in the time of need. That's why when I've been preaching to you the last week and I've been telling you it's a new and a living way past the veil of his flesh. This is a new this is a new system altogether ratified not by the blood of a bullock, the blood of a goat, or even the red heifer, but ratified by the atoning blood of Christ on the cross, and it gives us hope and joy and peace, and it changes us, and it washes the filth. It washes the filth that's in our consciousness away. That's why don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Even when you feel unclean, come to this house on the third day. Come on the seventh day because in our hand is an instrument. In our mouth is a word. On our lives is an anointing that can cleanse your consciousness of dead works. And you can start discovering that you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, hallelujah. Glory to God. Every week, conclusion colon every week someone's being sprinkled every week their heart and mind is being cleansed Jojo said it earlier you may have come in here your countenance is down what does that mean that means your conscience feels soiled feels soiled but as you hear you hear what stories as you hear the word don't go to a church that's not preaching the word I don't have time for that. When I come to church, I want to hear the Word. Because when I hear the Word, I get an image of Jesus. I can be blind and still see Jesus. I can be deaf in ear and still hear the Word. I can hear the Word of God. That's why the writer Paul said, How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? For it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. So I conclude with these words. If the ashes of a red heifer could be sprinkled on the unclean and sanctify their flesh so that they could go from outside the camp back inside the camp, how much more can a word revealing to you the work of Jesus Christ on the cross purge your conscience from dead works, dead works, dead things, till you can serve the living God. 
I'm telling you, you can serve God. Some people think they can't serve God. You can serve God. You can. You can. Christ will work in you by His Holy Spirit. I believe in a God that begins a work in you. He is faithful to complete that work. How many believe that? Now, I believe in working out my own salvation with fear and trembling, but Philippians 1 and 6 says, the God that began a good work in you is faithful to complete that work. You know, we used to sing the song with the children and said, he's still working on me. How many believe he's still working on us? He's working in us and working through us. He's changing us and shaping us. You know, that's why the writer of Hebrews ultimately said this. He said this. He said, look, lift up those hands that are hanging down. That which is crooked, let it be made straight. Come on, in essence, what he's saying is get your head up. I saw a basketball coach uh, this past week, and his, his player had made a bad play, and he's running off the court, and the coach is yelling at him, get your head up. Get your head up. Today I say that to you, get your head up. Quit being dejected. Look at what Jesus accomplished at the cross. Look intently. Look intently at it. And I'll tell you, it will lift your countenance. And you'll believe in what he died to accomplish. He's willfully given to us freely. No wonder Paul said he will now give us freely all things. He's so gracious and merciful to us today. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed in the presence of God. It's 12.03 today. It's taken me about 45 minutes to say what I needed to say. And I hope it stimulated something. I hope your heart has burned within you today. Who here today would be honest? I'm going to ask for this moment right now to be very serious. Very serious. It's, it's difficult in today's time. People start shutting.